Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Monday, June 7th. John, what do you want to talk about today? Let's start with FBI Director Christopher Wray, who says his agency is investigating about 100 ransomware attacks. The JBS and Colonial Pipeline attacks may be the tip of the iceberg, probably almost certainly is the tip of the iceberg. We'll get into that, and I want to discuss the power struggle going on inside the Idaho Republican Party. What about you? I want to talk about the massive industrial policy bill that's about to get passed in the Senate. And I want to get your take on the strong showing by the CDU, the Christian Democrats, and the weak one by the AFD in a regional election in Germany on Sunday. All right. Well, before we get into the news items, let's start with a couple of science and tech headlines. First, the FDA on Monday approved new medication for Alzheimer's, which it hasn't done in nearly 20 years. The drug, aducanumab, has its critics. Some experts, including at the FDA itself, say there isn't enough evidence that it works and highlight the risk of brain injury observed in trials. And though the FDA hinged its approval on a new clinical trial by the drug's manufacturer, it will be available to patients while that research is ongoing. The treatment is a monthly intravenous infusion that effectively reduces levels of amyloid, a protein that accumulates in clumps in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. About 6 million Americans suffer from this terrible cognitive disease and that's likely to rise as the country grows older. John, what do you think of the FDA's green light here under a program known as Accelerated Approval? I think it's terrific. You know, there will be people for whom it doesn't work. There will be people, I'm sure, who have adverse effects from it. Um, But it's, you know, it's a step down the road toward what we hope will be either a cure or mitigation of the effects of of, uh, Alzheimer's. Let's hear it for progress. Indeed. Next, atmospheric carbon dioxide hit a record high in May. The monthly average registered at an NOAA observatory in Hawaii hit 419 parts per million. To give you more context, this figure surpassed 400 parts per million in 2013. The last time it had done so was a few million years ago, before humans were around. So we're continuing to push into uncharted territory as far as carbon dioxide levels go. It's likely to be a major statistic hanging over the proceedings at the UN's climate change conference this November in Glasgow, Scotland. Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, has cast the event as the world's last best hope to change course. You know, depending upon how panicked you are about climate change, uh, obviously Glasgow is a critical meeting, but it's clearly not getting better. Let's put it that way. Yeah, indeed. Let's go to the news items. Okay. America has a ransomware problem. FBI Director Christopher Wray tells The Wall Street Journal that the agency is investigating about 100 such attacks in which hackers confiscate an organization or company's files until they pay up. According to Wray, President Biden plans to bring up the issue with Russian President Vladimir Putin when they meet at a summit in Geneva in mid-June. Many of the hackers involved are suspected to reside in Russia. Thousands of these attacks occur every day. In recent weeks, ransomware has disabled the world's biggest meat processor and, in a high-profile attack, shut down the eastern seaboard's colonial pipeline. So, John, given that ransomware complaints have tripled in the past year, according to the journal's reporting, and given that we have seen instances of increasingly brazen attacks on critical infrastructure, do you think there's a chance that these attacks will continue to escalate? And if so... Does that lead to a widespread perception that the Biden administration is simply impotent in protecting the United States from these kinds of attacks? Yes, I think the attacks will increase in number and intensity. 
I think the one that is really going to bring it to public attention is when Visa cards or Amex cards or whatever are blocked from usage by ransomware or when your account or my account with Fidelity were unable to access that. I think that's going to make this issue much more tactile than it perhaps is now. The U.S. government response to this so far You know, the Biden administration at least has sort of put it front and center with the FBI director saying it's a 9-11 situation. The Trump administration was extraordinarily weak in its response to this. And Joe Biden is the president, so uh, Republicans will claim that it's his fault. Will that work? Probably will. Um, If we don't have some clear response, if we're just going to take a meeting with Putin in Geneva and talk about it, you know, really? (laughs) (laughs) I want to bring this issue up with you. All of these hackers are housed inside your borders and they, Mm -hmm. in all likelihood, are working with you. Would you please stop it? You know, until we figure out how to respond robustly, the perception will be that the administration is weak, and that will have you know political repercussions. I can't imagine this is not going to blow up as a political issue by the end of the year. And I have no idea how it will play out politically, but I can pretty much guarantee that Republicans will blame Biden. Some of the challenge is jurisdictional, is it not? Yeah. Many of these attacks are being lodged against companies in the private sector where the federal government has little to no regulatory oversight of cybersecurity standards. You can encourage companies to invest mightily in cybersecurity, but you can't force them. They have no oversight mechanism to find out who is or is not investing appropriately in the next generation of malicious hacks, right? I mean, that's true. there's got to be more teeth on the regulatory end. Well, and there also has to be more teeth on the response, right? Sure. What would you say to Vladimir Putin? You know, you'd have to say that, you know, if it continues, there's going to be a massive response. And you probably don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. If there is no nothing to back up the threat, then you can't say that. But if you do have something that can back up the threat, that can throw the financial system in Russia into complete chaos, Mm -hmm. then it seems to me you would say, look, you know, we don't want to engage in this war, but if it continues, we're going to have to and leave the decision to him. Oh, to be a fly on the wall in Geneva. Yes. Come June. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. The Senate is poised to pass what the New York Times calls the most expansive industrial policy legislation in U.S. history. It's a mashup of other bills that would direct nearly $250 billion in funding to key industries and agencies of the future, like AI, robotics, and quantum computing. The chip industry would receive $52 billion in subsidies. DARPA, the Pentagon's R&D wing, would see its budget doubled. Passing the bill will be a rare instance of bipartisanship. And although it's being pitched as a jobs bill, the legislation is aimed squarely at China. The goal is to make sure the Chinese government and their military don't gain a technological edge. Rebecca, conservatives usually don't like industrial policy, right? I mean, I remember it being called picking winners and losers. And how could we forget the Solyndra investment that the Obama administration was pilloried for? So I got two questions for you. One is direct government investment in private industry warranted in this case? And two, do you think it'll work? Yes, I 
do. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Why? I think it's time for government to start throwing money in this. Okay, look, in order to understand this dynamic, you have to understand how export credit agencies have become a tool of statecraft in subsidizing these sorts of innovations and pushing them out into the world. Something absolutely disastrous happened to the XM Bank from the years 2015 to 2019, which is that it became a victim of sort of political headwinds in Washington. So for that four-year period, the XM Bank was held back from supporting any long-term export transactions and could only approve uh, transactions of less than $10 million, during which time China took that absence of any counterweight coming from the U.S. and ran with it. During that same period, China's official medium to long-term export activity increased to more than 90% of all G7 countries combined. And this was in areas like quantum computing, in AI, in 5G, in renewable energy, in energy technology, in medtech. I mean, all of these in smart cities. The ramp-up happened at a time when the Exxon Bank was asleep at the wheel. So it is time to get government involved in these kinds of innovations in a big way. What do you think, John? (laughs) That's my take. My view is that, you know, you just take as much money as you possibly can and you put it into DARPA's budget. DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency and has been responsible for, among other things, the Internet. And so I think that's one place you could put the money. And then I think the logical thing to do would be to create a sort of a civilian DARPA and look at these crucial technologies and figure out a way to make that work. So-and-so would get this project and another company would get that project. That seems to me to be something that would be really fruitful because you could pour, again, vast amounts of money into it and conduct research and underwrite research that would, in fact, be truly beneficial to American interests. It's bipartisan. It's one of those rare things in this day and age that enjoys bipartisan support, and it's absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. I'm old enough to remember Japan's industrial policy and the success of it in the late 70s and the early 80s. And so the political debate, Democrats led with, we should have the same thing. And Republicans were adamant that Hmm. no such thing should occur. And lo and behold, Japan fell behind and the U.S. technological revolution took place. Um, It's unclear to me if that happens again. So probably it's a good idea to fund uh, advanced technologies to the hilt. I mean, China represents a different kind of geopolitical entity than Japan ever did. You know, plus we've just had this very nasty lesson as a result of COVID and the, you know, supply chain disruptions and the shortages that arose in the first phase of COVID about what happens when there's not domestic production capacity for some of these technologically sensitive products. The pandemic taught us many, many things. And one thing it taught us was how unprepared we are for so many different things. That's been a revelation. Addressing it in this way is at least one good thing that's come out of Washington. Indeed. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to News Items. Republicans in Idaho seem to be in the midst of a political civil war. Independent journalist Jason Wilson lays it out in a piece in The Guardian. While acting as governor, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan signed an executive order that banned mask mandates by local governments in the state. Then Governor Brad Little revoked the executive order. This spat over masks is part of an ongoing dispute between right-wing GOPers and far-right-wing Republicans. And according to a misinformation expert quoted in the article, Idaho is, quote, in the vanguard of extremist activity, end quote. 
John, do you think this dynamic is unique to Idaho, or is this the beginning of a nationwide trend? McGeehan's an interesting and eccentric case. She has ties to the three percenters in Idaho. She has tried to co-opt Eamon Bundy's assertions that federal lands in Idaho are actually property of the state and of the people of Idaho. She is a very ambitious politician, and she's pretty much willing to do whatever she thinks she needs to do to get the GOP's gubernatorial nomination next year. One of the problems she has is that Eamon Bundy, who's famous for the standoff in Idaho with the federal government over lands, federal lands, Mr. Bundy is also running for governor, and McGeehan needs to shut that down if she's going to have any chance of winning the nomination. So it's a lot of different dynamics in Idaho, and we can discuss some of them because they are both fascinating and disturbing. Idaho is a deep red state. You know, this is not <laughs> this is not a swing state. They have not elected a Democratic governor for 30 years. So Brad Little apparently is not right-wing enough. Tell me what's going on there. The governor you would describe, anyone would describe, as very conservative. Mm -hmm. So to get to his right, as Lieutenant Governor McGeehan has done, and obviously Eamon Bundy is out there in La La Land, mm -hmm. you know, I think the pandemic radicalized a big part of the Idaho Republican primary electorate. And the anti-mask mandate was sort of the perfect expression of that. McGeehan saw the opening and took it. And the problem for her, it seems to me, is she got to figure a way to get Eamon Bundy out of the race because he could attract as much as 15% of the vote in a Republican primary. If she can get him out of the race, she has a pretty good chance of defeating Little in the primary. And if she wins in the primary, she'll be the next governor. And her security detail as governor might well be people from the three percenters. Well, this is a scary story. This is something that will put chills down your spine. And I think one of the one of the most alarming statements in the Guardian piece was this assertion that different elements of the far right are working together in new ways. Because the question I have is, which elements in the far right and in what new ways are they working together? Do you have a take on that? I wrote a piece about this after the January 6th, and the, the point I made or the argument I made was that from the point of view of the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the militias, January 6th was a success. They were able to probe the defenses of the federal government. They found out that they could actually take control of the Capitol and that political apparatus would be very slow to respond. And then in the aftermath, they saw the people who were critical of Trump and were critical of them, they saw them censured by state and local Republican parties. Just recently, obviously, the establishment of a commission to look into what happened January 6th was shut down by the Republicans. So from their point of view, they won January 6th, and that has emboldened them. I think they're sort of figuring out what the next big play is, yep. and they're working more closely with one another. You know, an aforementioned FBI director Chris Ray, yeah. said it was the single most important terrorist threat that the U.S. faces, bigger than al-Qaeda, bigger than the Taliban. Bigger than ransomware, presumably. Bigger than <laughs> ransomware, although <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that's true. But, you know, bigger than Mexican drug cartels. So it's, yeah, I mean, they're 
they're not going away. And they are emboldened, and they may, they probably won't, but they may elect a governor who's very sympathetic to their cause. And that's truly a different kettle of fish, if you will. Well, they've had the dry run, apparently, and planning for the curtain call, I suppose. Modern American politics. Hmm. Let's move on to the next item. According to official preliminary results, Germany's ruling center-right Christian Democratic Union, or CDU, has beaten the far-right Nationalist Party Alternative for Germany, or AFD, in regional elections in the eastern state of Saxony-Anhalt. Pre-election polls had the race essentially tied, and one poll had the AFD, which has neo-Nazi ties, slightly ahead of the CDU. The votes are still being counted, but the CDU appears to have gotten 37% of the vote versus 21% for the AFD. In March, the CDU lost regional elections badly, and their new leader, Armin Laschet, has been struggling. So even though Saxony-Anhalt is a small state, the victory is a shot in the arm for the party ahead of Bundestag elections in September. John, do you think this means that fears of a rising nationalist party in Germany are overblown, or is the AFD still a credible threat? Well, I think the AFD is here to stay. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But the CDU won, right? Um, It was the closest thing to a landslide that the CDU could garner in an East German state Mm -hmm. where the AFD is strongest. You know, they were supposed to get 27%. They got 37%. It was Mm -hmm. a huge win for them. Obviously, the AFD didn't do as well as they'd hoped. They were down, I think, three points from the 2016 performance. But, you know, that was in the middle of the refugee migration crisis. And so they held steady mm-hmm. and they remain, obviously, in East Germany, especially a force to be reckoned with. I thought that the analysis in Deutsche Welle was very interesting. A poor showing by CDU in the Saxony-Anhalt election over the weekend could have forced them to form a coalition with the left, which, according to DW, is almost as much a taboo as almost as much a taboo as forming a coalition with the AFD. Are you kidding? (laughs) Are you kidding? Almost as much a taboo. That's atrocious. I mean, we're talking about like, I mean, come on, neo-Nazis, neo-Nazis, (laughs) neo-Nazis. I'll say it again. I mean, that's, that's appalling. You know, the, one of the things that's going on is this barbell election, right, where the mm-hmm. CDU is combating the AFD in the eastern uh, part of Germany, and they are combating the left slash greens in the western part of the country. But I think because of the size of the victory over the AFD, I think they can focus uh, more on a national message. The plot thickens in Germany. Yeah, it's big. In September, we have the election, the Bundestag election, which will then lead to the selection of a new chancellor. And it's really important. If Germany goes off the rails, then Lord only knows what happens to the EU. So continuity in Germany is seen by all interests, certainly Western interests, as a crucial outcome. All right. I think that's that's it from us today. Check out John's newsletter, News Items. You can find it at newsitems.substack.com and go for the premium subscription where you get the greatest perspectives in the news business today. And for more on the global market of things, you have to check out Rebecca's website, investableuniverse.com. I do so every day. And I highly recommend it. That's it. Go there. 
And there we go. <laughs> News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news. See you then. <laughs>